Take out your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 9. That'll be our text this morning. From time to time, I like to share with you about my garden. I'm not sure why. It's not particularly impressive. But we always have fun with it, and I'm always learning lessons about it. So to give you the current garden update at the Killer Lane's house this year, so far my cilantro is getting way too much sun. My jalapenos have not gotten enough sun. I'm fairly confident my squash and mint need more water, and the rabbits completely destroyed my carrots and cucumbers. Which is to say, there are many, many things that can derail a garden, and such is the Christian life. Whether it's water or fertilizer or rabbits or just not knowing what to do, there are so many things that can derail us. And that's going to be one of the things we're looking at this morning as we step into Mark chapter 9. The things that derail our Christian faith. So as we get going, let's take a time to pray for our time in God's Word. O gracious Father, as your word proclaims in the book of Isaiah, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and spout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth and it, not, and it shall not return to me empty." But it shall accomplish that which I purpose for it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Father, we're gathered here together this morning as your body expecting to hear from you. Trusting, God, that you will use your word to water our famished souls. You've promised it, God. We believe it. Father, we pray that your word would have its intended impact on our lives, that you would grow us up, that you would mature us, that you wouldn't just leave us in our sins, but you would call us out of them. Father, would you call us away from spiritual immaturity, whatever it might be in our lives, that we might be more mature, more complete in Christ. Father, we ask that you would give us the ears to hear and hearts to obey. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Last week, last Sunday, we watched the disciples attempt to do something they were called to do, they were empowered to do, they were trained to do, they'd done successfully in the past, and yet when they come to it, they couldn't do it. Why? Jesus told them it's because they tried without prayer. They tried to accomplish it without prayer. Or to put it in the words of John in his gospel, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The disciples did not pray. They accomplished 
Nothing. They did not abide in Christ and they were not effective. Beloved, it is that reminder that we desperately need not only salvation, but we desperately need to be dependent on Jesus Christ all the time, reliant all the time. We need to be pursuing this life of dependency, this life of reliance. Abide in me. Bear fruit. Live apart from that. You can do nothing. I regularly meet with Christians who say things like, I don't feel any power in my life. I don't see Jesus moving in my life. So the natural next question is, are you abiding? Right? Are you abiding in Him? Are you dependent on Him? Are you relying on Him? Last week we leaned into that, articulating obviously that prayer is a move of dependence. We see that in the text. It's to recognize I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I need Jesus. And studying our Bibles is a move of dependence. It's to recognize I need my mind. I need my spirit renewed. Life transformation doesn't come from me just working harder. It comes from me looking at Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3. And even plugging into Christian community is a move of dependence. Everything about our world tells us that we should be our own person. And we start to isolate ourselves, not recognizing at all that that is a move of independence rather than a move of dependence. Beloved, we need to recognize we cannot do life alone. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that together with all the saints, we might have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God, which only leaves you to understand. If you're not regularly plugged into the body, you're not going to understand the depths of the love of God in your life. We're called to abide in Christ. And so to have a regular discipline of prayer, to regularly feed our souls with God's Word, to regularly gather with His people, these are not the only things that lead to an abiding life, but they're a simple three. So we have kind of a, an idea of what does it mean to really abide in Christ? What does it mean to depend on Christ? We have some ideas of what we should do, some positive practices that help us lead to living a dependent life. But we also need to know, we need to be aware that there are negative practices that can lead lead us into our independence. They can lead us away from a dependent life. They can lead us away from a reliant life. They can lead us away from abiding. They can lead us to our pride. 
And this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 9, we're going to see these four little snippet stories. And if you put them all together, what you start to see is these little windows, these little excerpts that tell us, that show us how dangerous our pride can be, how dangerous our sin can be, and the impact it has on our lives. For beloved, we need to be honest. If there are practices that lead us to abiding in Christ, there are practices that lead us to abiding in the world. Beloved, we have to be so cautious and careful with that. Especially if you want to abide in Christ and live in the power of Jesus. We need to learn to see and to recognize and to avoid these potholes in our lives. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and we'll jump in. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask him. Jesus and his disciples are passing through Galilee on the way to Capernaum. He's teaching his disciples. And this isn't a new teaching. In fact, we find that Jesus, probably a week before that in Mark 8, had taught them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him when he's killed. After three days, they'll rise. Jesus is showing them the plan. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. This time, Peter doesn't argue. But as verse 32 tells us, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Beloved, I want to remind you in Mark 8, after they ask questions, Jesus goes on into the application so that they would understand what it means that he's going to die. Jesus leans in further onto them and tells them, Anyone who desires to come after me should deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Which is to say, the last time they had this conversation, it didn't seem to go so well. The last time they had this conversation, it seemed to point to, you're going to die too. Friends, I have a feeling they didn't want to ask because they didn't want to know. As a child, I remember my mom leaving a laundry basket at the bottom of the staircase. She left it there regularly so that one of her kids could carry it up the stairs for her. I cannot recount the number of times I walked right by it, or the number of times I stepped over it on the way up the stairs. And from time to time, my mom would ask, and I'd explain I didn't know, I didn't see it, I didn't understand that she wanted me to do it. But in reality... It's not just that I didn't want to do it. It's that I didn't think I should do it. I didn't think I should have to. I thought it was kind of above that. I didn't do it because I didn't think I should have to. Might I suggest to you that one of the pitfalls of our faith is not just pride, but entitlement. You see that a little bit in the disciples as Jesus tells them, I'm going to die Yeah, we don't get it. I think they didn't get it because they didn't want to. 
And some of us need to lean into this a little bit further. I say us because I'm high on the list. We need to recognize that we have an entitlement. And it might be a physical entitlement. It might even be a spiritual entitlement. But we can get caught up thinking about what we deserve and what we don't deserve. Or do we deserve to suffer? Or do we deserve hard times or difficulties or challenges? Even when the Bible forecasts that for us it becomes really possible for us to really start thinking about and processing and believing in our hearts that we deserve better in our lives than this. We deserve more praise, more money, more opportunities. We deserve a better job. And beloved, what we miss in all of that entitlement is that our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Our eyes are solely fixed on Self, give me what I want. I deserve what I want. My needs matter the most. Love, we all struggle with that, if we're honest. In one shape or another, we all struggle with this sense of entitlement. And we need to see, according to the text, for to fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, we're called to throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Which is to say that the things that cast your gaze off of Jesus and onto something else is really dangerous. Some of us need to repent of entitlement. Some of us need to recognize it's a sin that we need to throw off if we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, if we're to truly abide in Him, if we want to live in the full power of the life that Jesus has given us. Can't afford sin. Verse 33, the second pitfall. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked him, what were you discussing on the way? Quick pause. We should be reminded of their last conversation. I'm going to die. So let's see what the disciples are talking about after Jesus reveals them to get to their entitlement. But they kept silent, verse 34. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus presses on into them. Jesus is headed to the cross, and the disciples want to know who the greatest is. Think about for a minute how that must have gone down, how that conversation goes. I am very important. Actually, I'm more important. I'm actually really, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. No, I'm actually more best than you. I'm the bestest of the best, best, best. And on one hand... We can kind of laugh about that. We can snicker. 
And on the other hand, we kind of ought to start confessing a little. Because I think subtly this kind of self-importance, this self-centeredness seeps into our lives. Now, sure, it may not be that clear. We may not walk away from church. We may not get in our cars after a worship service and get into an argument about who the best in our car is. We may not do it quite so boldly. But subtly in our minds, don't we? I mean, isn't that the selfish self-centeredness that stems and causes entitlement? I don't deserve this. Beloved, when we live this way, when we live in such a me-first world, we should at least be honest enough to acknowledge that Jesus isn't first. I am. And worse than that, I'm not proclaiming Jesus as king. I am. Beloved, we need to be reminded that Jesus is not supposed to be an add-on, as in one of the things that I'm kind of into. Or even that Jesus is my top priority, as in I've got other priorities. Jesus just happens to be one of them who happens to rank number one. Colossians 3, Paul says, When Jesus, who is our life, it's not part, it's not some, It's not a focus. It's not a priority. It's everything. Jesus is called to be everything. And the very, very idea of fixing your eyes on Jesus literally means you have no time to focus on self. What I need, what I deserve. Me, 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 me. We have a book at our house called The Me Monster. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a cute little book talking about this little monster that runs around saying, me, 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 mine, 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 mine. And you read it to your kids and you're like, yeah, kids, don't be selfish. And you get to the end and you're like, oh, I think that was me. You know, I don't do that with small toys, but I do that with all my other entitlements. I think that book is about me. Beloved, there's not room for you in the throne room. It's Jesus' throne. He invites you to come, but he doesn't invite you to lead. And Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Last at work, last at home, last at church, last in my neighborhood. You want, I need to be honest here, I want to be first. I want recognition. And it needs to be acknowledged that this thwarts my walk with Jesus. This hinders my ability to truly abide in Christ. It keeps me from fixing my eyes on Him when I'm constantly fixing my eyes on me. We need to realize that we're entangled in self-centeredness and we need to repent. Which brings us to our third pitfall, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I'm going to pause for a second. I I love studying the Bible. One of the cool things to watch when you study your Bible is pronouns. Jesus said to him, or John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in whose name? Your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following. Do you see the difference? It's not about Jesus. It's about us. The pronouns are so, they tell the story. The root of this story is comparison. They were not with us. It's not about Jesus. It doesn't say they're not with you. It says they're not with us. They're not like us. I don't think we have any concept at all about how evil the comparison game is. I don't think we have a clue how evil the comparison game is. Beloved, we need to cue in on the reality that the Bible testifies that Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. That he lays out traps, snares to catch you, 2 Timothy 2. That he schemes against you, Ephesians 6. That he's constantly shooting arrows of fire at you, Ephesians 6. And while he is the father of lies, John 8, and the great deceiver, Revelation 12. We should pick up on the fact that the little voices in our head are often Satan telling us. Even commanding us to compare. And it doesn't matter whether you see yourself on the top or the bottom of that comparison. They're both rooted in pride. And they both have nothing to do with following Jesus. Because at the very heart of it, you cannot fix your eyes on Jesus when you're sizing up your neighbor. Doesn't mean if you're better, I'm so much better than that guy. My eyes are on him and me, not Christ. That guy's so much better than me. My eyes are on him and me and not Christ. But we have to be so careful to not, to see that the sin of comparison is rooted in pride. It's rooted in entitlement. It's rooted in self-centeredness. In his book, Mere Christianity, I've got to give Pastor David credit for pointing me in this direction. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin, as in the greatest of sin, as in the root of all sin. He calls pride a spiritual cancer. Listen to what he writes. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Now, beloved, I don't know how close you've gotten to cancer. I know some of you have tasted it firsthand. I know some of you are close to it. But some of the worst things about cancer is that it ravages healthy cells. It grows. It gets bigger. Doesn't stay in its spot. Doesn't understand boundaries. It moves around. 
starts consuming everything around it. So it starts as a little spot, ends up all over you if it goes untreated. It's pride. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. Entitlement. Comparison. Look at how Lewis illustrates that for us. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more than the next man. When we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not, they are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Do you see the cancer of pride spreading? And it's pervasive. And if it goes unchecked, oh beloved, it will spread everywhere. Are we guilty of this sin of comparison? Are we guilty of this kind of pride? Because we cannot fix our eyes on Jesus if we're going to spend all of our time staring at somebody else in comparison. Which brings us to the fourth pitfall, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea terrorizing verse for a pastor. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Can you find me the place where it says it's a good idea to hold on to pet sins? It doesn't. It's a good idea to hide your sin because you're going to be safer if you keep it from everyone else. Does it say that? No, it's actually testifying to the opposite. If you're not careful with your sin, your sin will literally take you to hell. So here's the question. Do we take our sin seriously? Or do we play with it? Do we think of it as a nuisance? I mean, is my sin a dandelion? Or is it arsenic all over my kitchen? Like, we tend to think of it as these little inconveniences. Boy, if it didn't pop up, my man, life would be easier. Let's just, let's just root that one out. We'll root that one. Well, if it's, we're called to take sin seriously. For C.S. Lewis proposed all sin stems from pride. From the basis that I know better, that I know what I want, that I know what I need. Oh, and hear me, 
We don't see this overtly. But we practice it. You know, in this situation, anger is my best solution. Yesterday, I'm trying to get our kitchen cleaned up. It's our Saturday morning. We try to get our kids. Everyone's got jobs. Everyone do your jobs. Nobody's doing their jobs. Well, everyone's supposed to be doing their jobs. I'm supposed to be giving the dog medicine. Despite my best attempts, the dog won't take her medicine. And for some really bad reason, I decide the best response I can elicit is anger. I took it out on my whole family. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And it was all self-importance. It was all pride. We make decisions all the time. Jealousy is the best solution. Lust is the best solution. Whatever I want to do, it's the best solution. Rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, if Jesus here says it's better for you to enter life crippled than to go to hell, we don't want to deal with our sin. Some of us are flat out embracing sin as if it has no consequences. I'm not just preaching at you. I live in this world. I confess my sin all the time. And I hate it. I hate all the ways I get carried into sin without even thinking about it or trying. I hate that I gave myself over to anger. But beloved, on top of all the external consequences, and there were some, right? I had to go apologize to my wife. I had to apologize to my kids. It's not fun to apologize to people to own your sin, but they're But on top of everything else, we need to understand that at a root level, that sin robs us of our intimacy with Christ. Sin derails us from abiding in Christ. Sin keeps us from living in the power of Christ. But Jesus uses really strong words here. Because he wants them to understand the impact of sin. He doesn't want them to negotiate it. He doesn't want them to hug it, to embrace it. He wanted to teach them the absolute necessity to decimate it, to destroy it, to make war with it. But these passages lay out pitfalls of sin in our lives. Sin that we can't afford to hold on to. Sin that we need to confess. Sin that's ruining our intimacy with Jesus. Beloved, as we come to a close this morning, I want to remind you of two truths from these passages. Two things I want you to hold on to. First, I want to remind you, this passage started with Jesus telling the disciples that he was going to be killed and three days later would rise again. Friends, there were 12 sinners in that group. The disciples. There's not a person in this room 
who's not a sinner. There's irony. There's great encouragement in the fact that Jesus is teaching his disciples, but starting it with, and I'm going to die on your behalf. Jesus did not ask us to get our lives right and then come to him. Jesus did not ask us to clean ourselves up. No, we need to know and understand, and we need to really, really, really fight to believe that Jesus went to the cross precisely because we were stuck in our sin and precisely because there's nothing that you can do about it on your own, which is to lean really far into, we're not preaching morality as if, here, go clean up your lives. No, we need to recognize that Jesus did die. And in his death, he defeated sin and he defeated death and he rose again, giving way to the new creation life that we've been given in Christ, that our sin can be defeated. Our sin can be overcome, not by you, but by the power of the cross. Beloved, we need to be reminded that the work of salvation was completed by his death. And though we all give ourselves over to pride and self-centeredness and entitlement and comparison, we all do. We need to be reminded those are sins that were nailed to the cross. They're sins that needed to die at the cross. We need to be reminded that the work of salvation was completed at his death. And the work of sanctification, that is putting away sin and growing in Christ likeness, is completely fueled by his death and his resurrection. It is fueled by the power of the blood of Christ. So we need to get that these are not salvation issues. Jesus calls us to come to him, to believe in him, to trust in him. And as we abide in him, seek intimacy with him, well, if he's going to point some things out, he's going to love you enough to say some hard things to say, oh, brother, oh, sister, I love you so much to point out that this is causing a problem with our relationship. I love you enough to say that this is robbing you of intimacy with me. Jesus is going to point out our sin because he loves us. And he wants us to walk in a greater intimacy with him. He wants us to walk in a greater joy that he has for us. He wants us to walk free. I'll close in reading Romans 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... 
We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if we're to fully abide in Him, we must recognize that we can't afford to fall into the trap of looking at ourselves or looking at others. Beloved, we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who has promised that having begun a good work in you, He will be faithful to complete it. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. For in it you declare salvation to us. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Father, that is every last one of us in this room. And yet there's not hopelessness in that verse. There's a reality that when we look at you and in your fullness, we see ourselves. God, when we recognize we've fallen short of your glory, we also recognize that you sent your son on our behalf. Your son died to pay the price for my sin. That by believing in you, I could enter into eternal life. I could enter into abundant life. I could enter into a relationship with you. Father, I'm so thankful for your son Jesus. For the salvation that he has granted us by his work at the cross. And Father, I'm so thankful that you love us enough to point out sin in our lives. Because you recognize that sin robs us of joy. You recognize that sin robs us of intimacy with you. Because you recognize sin takes so much more from us than what you've ever imagined. So Father, by the name of your Son Jesus, I just want to ask that you would continue to show us our sin. That in our sin, the majesty and the fullness, the completeness of the work of Christ would be magnified. That we could worship Jesus more and more and more because of the worthiness of what He accomplished on our behalf. Father, I want to pray that by the power of Your Spirit that You'd be at work in us, that we could reckon ourselves dead to our sin. Father, You've asked us to confess our sin. Your Word testifies if we confess our sins, You're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So Father, we confess our pride. We confess our self-centeredness. We confess our entitlements. We confess our comparisons. We confess all the things, Father, that lead us not to look at your son Jesus, but to make us king. Father, we ask that you'd allow us to abide in Christ. Praying, studying, being together,
that you just allow us, Father, to grow in maturity and Christ-likeness as we fix our eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.